Amen. So um, I just want to, uh, one more time, I guess I'll do this on Facebook and on in our service. Uh, I don't know if you guys can uh, see that there. That is the barcode for the uh, Pocket Testament League. Just want to remind you guys of the Gospel of John uh, so that you can share with people. And when you do plan of salvation inside and the opportunity to give someone the Word of God, to give them uh, the Gospel of John that they could read. And then uh, Bible is or Bible is uh, application available online. If you don't have a Bible on your phone, uh, this is a very good one. Uh, you can not only read uh, the Bible from that application, not only listen to the Bible being read to you, which a lot of people find very helpful, but you can also watch uh, a theatrical presentation of uh, many of the passages from the Scripture. So it's a very useful tool uh, to you as far as especially developing a daily habit of being in God's Word. So consider those two resources. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, actually, I say verse 1. We're going to pick up at verse 12. Uh, we've already read verses 1 uh, through 11. Uh, Paul had uh, talked about how you know he didn't find it uh, tedious uh, to uh, repeat the things that he had spoken to them before about. He warns them of those uh, people he refers to as dogs, evil workers, the mutilation, uh, those from Judaism who are come to the Christians and insisting that they have to be circumcised, uh, encouraged us to worship the Lord in spirit, uh, telling us that those who did were the actual circumcision, talked about how you know all of the things that he had as credentials, which certainly outweigh uh, our credentials. He was uh, you know, born of the tribe of Israel, Benjamin, and uh, been to school and received an education which eclipses anything that's even available uh, to us today, even as believers. Uh, and he counts that all as lost garbage, even referring to it as rubbish in verse 8 in comparison to gaining uh, Jesus Christ and how we have come into fellowship with the Lord uh, through faith. The Lord has given us right his righteousness and we've been welcomed into the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, uh, that we would be conformed to his death. We talked about how uh, that has to do with the self-sacrifice. Uh, Jesus did not want to embrace sin but did so in order to fulfill the will of his heavenly Father and thereby provide us uh, with salvation and life. Uh, the conformity of his death is we want to embrace sin, and so our resistance is to stay away from it. Jesus' resistance was to embrace our sin and die on the cross. So all of that sort of... Uh, overview brings us to verse 12, not that I have already attained or I am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also lay hold, laid hold of in me. And this is 
sort of foundational doctrine that he established in the very first chapter. We talked about uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where he said, I'm confident of this, uh, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it even unto the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The progressive um, uh, process of maturity that takes place in the Christian um, it certainly um, is not. We mistakenly sometimes, I even slip up in preaching, we refer to uh, the process of maturity. We re often refer to it as the process of sanctification. And that's not true at all uh, because Jesus Christ's shed blood at the cross has already sanctified us. Uh, would you mind closing those two doors there? Um so we've been sanctified. That's a positional thing. Uh, we've been sanctified in Christ. Uh, the maturity that he's talking about in, in chapter 1 then applies here in chapter 3. Yeah, you know, as he's saying, you know, I've, I've been granted this righteousness in verse 8, which is from God by faith. But here he's, he's careful to make sure that he you know, doesn't sound arrogant making himself out to be perfect. You know, I, I've not that I have already attained or I am already perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Paul, we shouldn't think of this as Paul, like being a sinful man, being still controlled, by his flesh and his lusts. And, you know, he's trying to talk about uh, his righteousness in the previous passages. And, you know, wink, wink, he has to tell us uh, that he's actually a very sinful man. That's not what he's saying at all. He, he's saying, uh, you know, the other direction, actually, that even though Christ has redeemed me, even though there is a process of maturity that has occurred and is occurring in my life, I'm not going to stop pressing forward towards the perfection uh, that Christ has set as the standard. I, I need to uh, have that ever-present thought of wanting to attain, wanting uh, to grow, wanting uh, to improve what the Lord is doing in me. That... Uh, you know, I may lay hold of that which Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. That onward progress. There is something that occurs uh, in our walk that we have to be very careful of. Um, sin, Hebrews tells us that sin is very deceptive. If we um, leave hidden sin in our lives, the deception is much more profound. If, if we have um, just the nor what we might describe as the normal average everyday struggles, uh, you know, you could, you know, fill in the, uh, your own blanks. But if if you're prone to losing your temper and, uh, 
you know, you've done great and you've, you've uh, been pursuing the Lord and been in the word and fellowship and you have a sense of calm and peace and maturity, but then somebody, you know, does something that suddenly provokes you and all of that boils up and comes bursting out of your flesh in the moment. That That's more what I'm describing of the normal, average, everyday type of failure and sin. We, we have those things because we are, we're in the flesh. The flesh in its of itself is sinful. So as long as we live on earth, we're going to have to contend with that weakness of the flesh. That has its own challenge. The challenge uh, that comes when we keep hidden sin in our lives is really destructive. Both of these things will tell us lies about the Lord. If we are leaving sin unchecked and we're acting like, well, you know, I just can't get rid of this thing. Well, we have all of the promises in the scripture that tell us that we should, as he's saying right here, press on toward the mark. If, if we give up with, well, you know, I just other people have maybe been freed, but I'm never going to be freed. And, and within that, we also can see that certain people actually go through the process of they become cynical and they start thinking because of their own failures that everyone has that same level of hypocrisy in their life, that no Christians are really free. Oh, they say that. They talk about that freedom, victory. But since I don't have it, then they must not have it. They must be hiding like I'm hiding. You know, as I've counseled people, I've heard this endlessly. The, the deception of sin is that sin gets to tell its own lie in the heart and the mind of that person, convincing them of something that's not true of God nor his character. God wants to deliver us from these things. He's capable of delivering us from the appetites of our flesh. And there has to be a willingness on our part to continue to press on towards the mark. If we're settling, if we're compromising, if we're finding, eh, I've tried, I've worked hard, I can't, this is just impossible. So I'm going to believe in my mind over here the things of God's character. But over here in my life where it's an utter failure, I have to have a different set of rules. Paul is encouraging us to not do that, to press on towards the mark. You know, if if we've come in here this evening and, and this is sort of striking a chord with us, let it rejuvenate your resilience, your determination to pick up the mantle again and come out swinging. You know, the, the you think about, uh, you've probably seen boxers who, you know, almost seem to be, you know, losing the whole thing and they finally are you know whatever round they're in and they're pinned in the corner and like that's it they come out of that corner and they're ready to just have victory and there there needs to be that encouragement in our lives that christ has set the mark at a place that is attainable why because he's given us his holy spirit he didn't say now the the, the standard is perfection I want you to achieve all of this work. I want you to be free of all of these things. 
But, you know, you're in your flesh and it's failing and it's sinful. And so, you know, just do your best. <laughs> and, and of course, you're, you're going to be incapable of it. He, he gave us the strength and said, you know, I'll lend you my spirit. You're incapable of that, but I'm completely capable of accomplishing these things. So I'll give you what is necessary within it. And, and the thing to recognize when the failure has captured us is that we haven't been relying upon the Holy Spirit. We've been relying upon the flesh. We've been doing some form of religiosity. And, and you know, thereby, that's how the missing of the mark occurs. Uh, it isn't that God is weak. It isn't that his Holy Spirit is weak. It isn't that his the promises of his word are, are somehow weak or impossible or failing. It, it's that we haven't relied upon it as the way it has been offered to us. So we, we must press on. We, we have to continue. We have to stretch and reach and try uh, for these things. We have to call out to God. That's really where it it comes down to, as I just described, you know, the receiving, the filling, the continual being baptized in the Holy Spirit. You know, the apostles uh, told us that we should be being baptized in the Holy Spirit. That isn't the one time I had that deeply emotional experience where I was at that service and I got baptized with the Spirit and, you know, in certain settings, they even like hand out the certificate. Literally, you had that experience, and you know, here they sign the pastor signs a thing and literally gives out a certificate of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Like as long as that's hanging on your wall, you're going to you know be able to have victory. I'm not mocking that as much as I'm saying that the fuel needs to be in the tank all the time. It needs to be that you're, you, you understand the weakness of your flesh and you're crying out to God all of the time for that continual flow, that continual filling, right? The oil that we see symbolized in the Holy Spirit the sim, or in the, in the scripture, the symbol of the Holy Spirit. And we see the priests that are continuously in the Old Testament, having to go in and refill and trim the wicks and tend to the lamp and refill and trim the wicks and tend to the lamp and refill. Okay, you, you get that idea. But then the prophet sees that lampstand plugged directly into the olive tree. And the flow of oil is unbroken and continuous. You know, we hear Jesus saying, you know, anyone who thirsts, let him come unto me, and, and I'll give him living water, and it will flow out of his inner being like torrents of living water. We need to have the strength of Christ in us continuously, and until you can recognize, yep, that's my state. <laughs> I've come to the place where I'm constantly begging God, and he's constantly pouring and constantly filling and constantly flooding. Until we get to that, then you've got to press on, and you've got to call out, and you've got to cry out to God until you can see that occurring in your life. Therefore, verse 15, let us as many as are mature 
have this mind. And if anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Some of these statements, if if we're not in the place we need to be, we can look at this and think of Paul as being really arrogant. Paul just said, look, if you're spiritually mature, you're going to agree with what I just said. So that implies that if you don't agree with what he just said, you're immature. So anyone that would dare say, I don't agree with that, is openly admitting, I'm immature. We need to recognize that I have to press on. This is a thing within the maturity of Christianity. That, That if we, in our weakness, in our flesh, in our sinfulness, find a place of compromise and complacency, uh, then we're doomed to just be in that continuous state of failure and repetition. So anyone uh, that is mature, let him recognize that what I'm saying to you is truthful. Verse 16, nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Okay, so maybe you're not completely mature in this understanding as far as its function in your life, but you should have enough maturity as a believer to agree in the truth of the statement, and therefore you should press on in it. Think about this. You know, take all of the examples of immaturity in the Scripture. Paul's saying you're going to agree with this in concept and in behavior, or you're openly admitting you're immature. So so now think of spiritual immaturity as he talks to the church and tells them, you know, by now some of you should have been teachers, but you're still babes. You're still drinking milk. It's one thing uh, for, uh, you know, children to have certain behaviors that are from their immaturity. But if if you're an adult and you're walking up to me after church and saying, Pastor Will, as you pick your foot up and put it on my knee and you say, could you tie my shoe? You know, this winter, if you're going to leave the church and you got your big mittens on and your coat and you go up and you say, could you zip up my jacket? You know, as an adult, <laughs> there are certain things. I mean, when a kid does it, it's even sort of cute. You know, you kind of want to. Like, yeah, let me zip your jacket up. Let me tie that little sneaker for you. As an adult, it's actually offensive. <laughs> not, not, not even from the position of, I mean, if you genuine, genuinely... You know, if somehow there's a weirdness going on in your head that you want me to serve you and I'm going to tie your shoe, okay, I guess I could do that. Wash your feet, sure. But if you're literally telling me, I don't I don't know how to tie my shoes. I'm 30, 40, 50 years old and just <sighs> didn't want to learn. Everybody's tied my shoes all along the way. So I just let it continue. What, what about sexual sin? What about drug addiction? What about gossip what about all the other areas of immaturity that so many christians 
are, are like, yeah, well, it's part of my life. Really? You, you, you don't want to grow? You don't want to mature? And, and you found some place in your own mind and in your own existence and, and a church and a fellowship where people are still tying your shoes. It's time to grow up, man. This is what Paul is saying. Even if somehow you made it through with Christian slip-ons, uh, you know, and never learn to tie your shoes. It's time to learn the necessary things. You gotta, you gotta press toward the mark. You've got to do the things that the Scripture has clearly laid out as being necessary. If, if you do not, there's something dramatically wrong, right? I mean, <clears throat> if a person is incapable of of learning to tie their shoes, and now they're an adult, now, now we're concerned, right? I mean, if some kind of selfishness kept them from doing it, we're upset with them because of their laziness and their selfishness. But if we come to the realization of, ooh, something's wrong here, that they're, like, incapable of learning this fine motor skill. Then, then something they're sick, their nervous system, their brain function, their their muscular structure, something's damaged. How is it that you've made it to this point in life and you've never learned this? You know the maturity Paul is talking. I'm not just like overreaching and trying to create something that isn't here. Paul is saying maturity, growth, development. This needs to be present in your life, and and if you're literally saying, I can't develop this skill. Then you need to be seriously alarmed. You need to be very worried about why. Why, why am I not grasping what Paul is saying? Why am I not pressing on towards the mark of maturity? What has interfered with this? You know, what developmental thing has stunted my growth, diseased my development, kept me from becoming what I should have become in Christ. There's something to consider in that process. Let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Our citizenship being in heaven, he begins in verse 17 saying, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern, okay? So, you know, you can see those that are more mature. You know, there, there's an interesting thing that occurs throughout our development towards maturity. You know, when we are children, we have certain language and certain walk and certain talk and certain behaviors and certain toys and certain things in our lives when we get a little older uh, we start looking to those that are ahead of us and we start longing you know the eight nine ten year olds are really kind of bummed with the fact that the 11 12 13 14 year olds get to go go do things they don't get to do they're looking up towards those who have developed a more mature walk. Paul is saying, you need to look at us as an example. 
You need you need to understand that wherever you are spiritually, as far as this maturity scale goes, you're looking up towards those that are more mature and saying, I need to get to the point where I'm walking like that. We do not want to be as Christians like I'm, I'm content right here in my my preschool level, in my elementary school, in my high school level, in my there's a maturity that Paul is setting out is, hey, we're the standard. Like you, you need like the guys who have learned to live under constant threat and being impoverished and, you know, developing this self-sacrificing life. He's saying you guys need to develop the attitude where you want to be like us. Want to go to prison? Yeah, want to go to prison. Want to suffer for the cause of Christianity. Want to spread the gospel, want to die to yourself. We're, we're giving you this example so that you can rise up. You know, there's a mentality in the church today, like, oh, well, you know, the pastor, he's over there, and he does that thing, and we're over here, and we're sort of the social club which is attached to that which the pastor does. Paul is saying, I'm the standard you guys should be rising up to. That, that That's really lost within the church. People settle into the place where they're comfortable. And they go, this is a nice spot for me in Christianity. I'd like to just settle down right here. I don't need to get any more mature. I don't, I remember how immature I was. I'd like to just be, Paul is saying, look, we're here as a pattern. You guys need to grow. You need to walk. You need to mature. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. And I need to explain that before we move on because gluttony is certainly something that the scripture talks about and even fits within this discussion a little bit, but it's the idea of their flesh, their appetites, the things that they like of this world that they consume. Their God is what they can consume of this world. And we can look at one person and say, oh, right, he struggles with drugs. That's a given. Well, what about the next person who struggles with business? Where that's their you know, ever-waking thought and obsession. You know, Jesus, when he said, you cannot serve God and mammon, Right? That was money. You can't have these two things in your life. You're going to end up hating one in the circumstance. You're going to love one and hate the other. There's going to be a breaking point where either Jesus gains the dominance or money gains the dominance. So this idea of there are those who are enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things. They, they don't look up beyond the uh, worldly, earthly, materialistic things. They, they, they've got a bunch of Christianity in their life. You know, he's talking about people within the faith, but their mind is set on earthly things. How about this, you guys? Colossians chapter 4, verse 14 Paul said, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greets you, right? 
Later in Philemon chapter 1, at verse 23, Paul says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas. There it is again, second reference. Luke, my fellow laborers. So he's referring to them as fellow laborers. The thing that's most painful comes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 9, where Paul says uh, to Timothy, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, uh, Cretans for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Demas, who is spoken of in Colossians and Philemon as a fellow laborer, by the time you get to 2 Timothy, is now being referred to as the one who's forsaken Paul because of his love of the present world. Believers that served next to Paul, who didn't grow, didn't mature, didn't look to his example to follow it, eventually what Paul is saying about, you know, be not deceived, that you know, God will not be mocked, whatever you sow you shall reap. Demas, apparently, throughout the process, even of working next to Paul in ministry, is sowing to the flesh, sowing to the flesh, sowing to the flesh, till eventually what wins out in his heart and mind is the world. He goes the way of the world. He Paul shifts the focus back in Philippians chapter 3 at verse 20 and by saying, For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now, uh, this glorious body that he's referring to as belonging to us or being prepared for us, this is the mansion that Jesus makes reference to in John chapter 14, beginning at verse 2, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Now, this physical body that we have is a tent. Paul tells us, and it's a worn out tent, you know, just about the time you reach your peak of uh, physical, uh, you know, development, uh, you're quite a long ways uh, toward the grave at that point. You're already falling apart. Things are already starting to deteriorate. So this tent, this, this physical body that we have, Paul says that our spirit resides inside it and that we, in breaking down, are longing for the eternal home of the body that Christ is preparing for us. Look, all of this struggle, all of this immaturity, all of this failure that Paul is encouraging us to leave behind and press toward the mark and grow and mature towards is going to be overcome by Christ when he gives us that new body and the flesh has absolutely no appeal. You're, you're not going to have any of those desires. Well, last night in Bible study with a group of guys, I was talking about when I was a child, I was uh, 
I had a classmate that brought two magnets to school and um, the magnets were out of a piece of machinery uh, that his father had torn apart and they were like especially powerful magnets. Uh, you could not pull them apart without setting them right on the edge of the table and with all your body weight pressing down on one to pull the pole off from the other side. You had to twist them apart. There's, there's no pulling them apart. Uh, he had photographs of his father pulling their truck up a hill with their family tractor, and it was the magnets stuck together that were holding the truck to the tractor, right? So we did some tests where we put different metal objects on a table and push the magnet towards the metal object and see at what point the magnetic force grabs a hold and pulls the object to the man. It was quite remarkable how far away, you know, feet away, it was pulling things into it. In particular, uh, I was attending a Christian school. In particular, uh, he used uh, ball bearings, larger ball bearings and BBs, put them on the table and it would pull towards it. And uh, towards the end of the demonstration, he puts this BB on the table. We've seen it pull big washers and nuts and bolts and, you know, ball bearings and just, you know, all these different things. And now he's got this BB on the table and he's pushing uh, the, the magnet towards it. And all of us boys, this is like super exciting, you know, the whole process that we've witnessed. And, uh, you know, it, it's getting to a place and we're just convinced we're all, you know, shrieking and yelling about we're convinced it's going to like the, the ball bearings, you know, just fly across. This BB's going to fly across and it doesn't. And it gets to a point where he's fairly close and we've seen it pull everything. And we're astonished. And he moves right up to the BB and then picks the BB up and he's bouncing it off from the magnet. And then he explains to us that the BB's made from aluminum. It, it has no attraction. Our physical frame is pulled towards sin. Christ is going to change our bodies. Now here's the thing. He can change it now. He can change our flesh now so that we aren't pulled towards the sin, so that we have the resistance that Christ had, right? He did not want to do the will of God, yet he did it, right? We do not want to do the will of God. We want to go to sin, yet with the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus said, you must be born again. Now, the change needs to occur now. This is what we need to agree with Paul about. You know, even if you're still struggling with it, you need to agree with the concept that this is wrong and that our human nature is wrong and that, you know, mine and your human nature needs to change now. We need to be something different now as evidence to the fact that when he comes, that, that spirit is going to reside inside the eternal body that he has prepared for us. Now, in chapter 4, he carries 
on by saying, Therefore, my beloved, and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord, beloved. He said beloved twice in that verse. <laughs> These people are beloved to him. He is deeply attached to them. My joy and crown. Those that he's brought to the faith. Those that he's worked in their lives. And seen the changes that have taken place. He specifically gets to naming two of them. I want you to notice something. I'm going to you know, draw your attention to the fact that he's already spoken about Demas. Right? And, and we've covered a couple of occasions where he specifically refers to Demas. We're, we're looking at the fact that within this letter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in verse 2, I implore Eudia and implore Syntyche, to women to be of the same mind in the Lord. There's a division. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul addresses that in writing, and we have to now read the names of two women who are experiencing division within the church. Th think about the fact that this letter is being written to the whole church. This letter is going to arrive at this church, and this is going to be read out loud. Well, you know, what if it's two ladies in this room, and I'm away, and I write a letter, and it arrives here, and on Sunday morning, this letter is read. What if what if it's you know, two men, you know, what if it's Casey and Eric and the letter arrives here Sunday morning and it's read that, hey, you know, my beloved that I've, you know, you're my joy and my crown. But I, I need to say to Casey and Eric, you need to be of the same mind. I think the church has become so sanitized and sterilized that it's become incredibly impersonal. Pe people do not want their faith addressed directly like that. Their maturities or their immaturities. We are a body. We're a family. And don't worry, I'm not going to start addressing people by name on Sunday morning sermons like that. But I think you can grasp what I'm saying here of how this, this is under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that it is forever recorded in the Scripture that these two women's names are written down and there's an admonishment. I mean, it's said very nicely, but, you know, basic, stop arguing. <laughs> you, guys, you guys need, you know, how's that going to happen? If you're going to be of the same mind, right, then that's going to mean you're going to have to get together as sisters, as brothers. You're going to have to look one another in the face, and you're going to have to talk about the issue until you've come to an agreement on it. Think about how that doesn't happen in the church today. People leave the church. Go to another church. Go down the road to another church. 
That is so messed up. The church needs to get in touch with the word of God and the spirit that wrote the word of God. These things need to be addressed. If, if you're sitting here, think about how many occasions the scripture tells us about people that are, you know, divided from one another in the body of Christ. I'm talking about in the body of Christ. There are people, Paul says, put out of the church. People that think they're fine with the Lord, who it's been addressed over and over again, and they're not. And Paul tells us, you know, in uh, Corinthians, in 2 Thessalonians, put them out of the church, don't have anything to do. Don't even greet them when you see them. So we're not talking about those. We're talking about those who are in fellowship, yet there's a division between them. you got to become of the same mind. You need to fix the problem. I urge you also, true companion. Now, we don't know who that is, right? but someone who is a true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Names are in the book of life. Now, there's some debate about the book of life, and I just want to touch on this briefly because it does create a lot of problems for people. Um, there is the concept that when you get saved, your name is written in the book of life. I don't personally agree with that um, because we see occasions where the scripture tells us that your name can be blotted out of the book of life. So if you go from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, what you discover is that it seems as though the Lord puts everyone who's ever been alive in the book of life. It's upon the final confirmation of rejecting God that the name is blotted out of the book of life. So when a person is at the great white throne judgment, the first book that's opened according to the book of Revelation is the name of the book of life. And if their name is written in the book of life, right, you, you got to wonder if, if this doesn't look like a giant book with massive columns of blank spots where names used to be there, but they've been blotted out and, oh, there's your name. Their name is in the book of life. So they don't have to go through the judgment of condemnation. There, there are many passages uh, that we can examine, and if you want to know more about that, but that's the basic concept of what we find in the scripture is all of the names of those who have ever been the living are written in the book of life, and that upon rejecting God as their creator and savior, then their name is blotted out of the book of life. So, with that, these names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And that needs to be a continuous thing, not a, a one-time thing. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. The return of Jesus Christ is at hand. Uh, that is constantly throughout the scripture. It isn't something that was created 
in you know modern era of the church it's something that the church held to adamantly and even said that those who believed contrary to that were heretics if they didn't believe in the possible immediate return of jesus christ the eminent return of jesus christ then they were not a believer they were not a christian he says in verse six be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to god now this idea of being anxious for nothing this this is a whole study we could do for you know several different sessions our culture is filled with anxiety just people are taking hands full of medication in order to try and deal with anxiety. Paul tells you to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, explanation, you know, expounding to the Lord with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I want you to notice something about this passage with me, about this verse. If you've drifted off, kind of slap yourself in the face and get back on track here. Being anxious for nothing the only way you do that is that in everything, you're going to pray with detailed explanation, with thanksgiving to God. That's going to mean that you believe God capable of whatever you're asking him for. You're not going to pray at length with exhaustive detail about your need if you don't believe God can do something about it, right? If I tell you that chair right there can cure all your problems, you just need to pray to that chair. You're not going to show up here every day and bow down before that chair and ask that chair for help because you know that chair is incapable of doing anything to help you in your circumstances. A lot of people don't bring their prayer to the Lord because regardless of what they say in church, around others, they don't actually believe that God can do anything about their circumstances. See, the anxiety enters in because we don't believe that God can do anything about it. This isn't the idea of just grit your teeth and clench your fists as you cling to your prayer beads and, you know, believe with all your might. This is a matter of drawing close to the Lord over the one thing and praying with earnest until you can see him in your environment working on that circumstance and it convinces you that he is capable of handling the next circumstance until all of the things that would make you anxious are being brought to him continuously in this earnestness of prayer. The weak, lazy, unbelieving approach of Christianity is why people are anxious. They, they, don't, they don't believe God. 
They don't think he can actually do anything about their marriage, about their children, about their finances, about their circumstances, about their loneliness. They don't believe it. Because they're not actually going to God. See, how can I thank you for something if I don't believe you're going to give it to me? That's what it says. You know, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Right? If I say to you, hey, can you loan me 10 bucks? You know, I can be thankful for it once it's in my hand. If I borrow 10 bucks from you every week, I can be thankful for you being in my life because you provide me with $10 every week. I pay you back. I borrow it, you know, for use of illustration here. But I can rely upon you. So I'm thankful for you being in my life and loaning me $10 every week. But I can't be thankful if I'm not reliant upon it. When Paul is telling us to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, that all is dependent upon us believing that God is capable of doing it. So many Christians don't even realize that their faith is nothing more than religion. They've developed a routine. On Thursday nights, they go to church at 6.30. And on Sunday mornings, they go to church at 10 a.m. And Sunday nights, they go to church at you know 6 p.m. And Thursday nights, they go to church at 6.30 p.m. And they just round and round and round and round. And they've got a whole bunch of Christian trinkets in their life. But when it comes down to, do you trust God for the anxiety that your life generates? The question is, do you really? Because for most people, they don't. That's why they're, they're so anxious. Because they do not actually believe God as being capable of taking care of these things. And notice, when we get to the place, right? When you get to the place, because I function in the place where I know God is going to take care of these things, then several things take place. I'm not anxious, and I'm at peace. Verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You know, people literally saying to me, what are you going to do if the cops come and arrest you guys because you're having church? I'm going to go to jail. That's that's what's going to happen. You know, I've been asking for months now if I can restart the jail ministries. They won't let us in because of COVID-19. Maybe they'll let me in because we've started church. You know, people are then saying to me, what is the church going to do? I hope they do exactly what Paul has just said here. I hope you follow my example. The very path I've walked in front of you and you've witnessed me walk it for all these years. I hope you carry on. I hope you've learned to trust Christ as I trust Christ. And that we can carry on in this. Being anxious 
for nothing. Uh, listen, it's not stupidity that causes me to just have this peacefulness. I'm not ignorant. You know, I'm not going to be surprised. And I can't believe this is happening to if it happens, it happens. I'm, I'm resting in. I, you know, the anxiety. Oh, you know what? This is creating anxiety in me. I got to take this to the Lord. Take it to the Lord. What am I going to do, Father? He says, open the church. What if I get arrested? I'll take care of it. What about my home? I'll take care of it. What about my kids? What about my wife? I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. With thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord. Thanks. Thank you that you're going to take a thank you for lending to me that which I need. I can take those prayers to the Lord in detail with thanksgiving in my heart, knowing Christ is going to take care of it. It isn't, you know, as though when I became a Christian, somebody just nailed me right in the head with a baseball bat. And now I'm just walking around oblivious to the realities of the world around me. You know, I've just been numbed. By my faith, right? That's that's what the world implies. Oh, yours is a mindless faith. No, it's not a mindless faith. I've seen the faithfulness of God. This is the maturity. Paul, this is all one subject, you guys. That Paul brings it to this point right now. We can trust Christ. We're going to have to stop right there. But, you know, it's a good place to stop. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The world looks on at how we trust the Lord in this way, and they, they don't understand it so much that they have to label it as some form of insanity. There's something wrong with those people. There's nothing wrong with us. We have the answers. If only they would grab a hold of the very things that are giving us this peace and guarding our hearts and guarding our minds. Listen, you guys, just to take that concept a little further. If you're not doing this, if you're not actually doing this, then you don't have anything to offer the world in your faith. If this isn't how we actually function, then, then we don't have anything to offer the world. You are offering them some kind of vanity, some kind of fake thing. It must be that we've learned the faithfulness of God and that we're able to trust him because if there's still that anxiety in our hearts, still. And, and let, me, let me even take that one step further. If you've got people in your life that you've been trying to look up to, they profess to be a Christian, they profess faith, and maybe they are a Christian. I don't have the ability to say whether somebody's saved or not, and I'm not trying to say that. But you've looked up to them, and you see the anxiety in their life. Maybe you want to stop relying on them. Maybe they are a believer, but maybe they haven't come to the place of growth as Paul is describing here, and maturity as Paul is describing here, that you can rely upon. You need to be able to follow their steps. You need to be able to follow their example. And there are many who say, I'm a mature Christian. 
I'm capable of teaching everybody. I'm capable of explaining this passage and showing you this. Yeah, is your life actually demonstrating that you have a reliance upon the Lord that gives you a peace which surpasses all understanding? I'm not talking about an arrogance. I'm talking about I have learned that I can trust Christ for his provision. I hope I hope to God, literally, you've learned the same thing. That that's your state of existence. Because when we function this way, then we actually have something to offer the world. A freedom from the plague of anxiety. The plague of faithlessness. So, we'll pick up with uh, verse 8 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. How about that? Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to rely upon it, to trust in you. Help us to be men and women whose lives are surrendered. Lord, free us from our flesh. Free us from our immaturity. Accomplish the very things you want to accomplish in our hearts, our minds, our lives. Lord, we have to admit that a lot of times, our goals are very worldly. Even in our religion, even in our faith, they're very fleshly. Help us to be men and women who truly are born again, children of God, sharing with the world the work that you've performed in us. May we present to those around us the opportunity to be delivered from the rot, the corruption, the sin, the disparity of this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.